<clears throat> in the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. <clears throat> so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive the Holy Spirit you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which near, is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. May the Lord bless the reading of his words today. You may be seated. So last time, we left off there uh, in verses 1 through 5, and if you recall how that ended, Jesus, after spending 40 days with them in their presence, intermittently anyway, he demonstrated that he had physical victory over the grave, and eventually he makes them the promise. Remember, they're all in Jerusalem at the time, and he makes them the promise that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. But you remember what it was that Jesus said at that time. He, he said, this is going to happen in a few days, but for now, I need you to stay and to wait. And so that was the command that they were given at the time. I can't imagine uh, you know, kind of what it is that they were experiencing at that time, the, the excitement, the, the whole idea that Christ, of course, had victory after the, that um, grotesque, macabre um, crucifixion, and here he is in their presence, and he's told them that they have to stay and wait. And this next series of events that take place in what we're looking at today in verses 6 
through 14 are all contained within that idea at Jerusalem of staying and waiting. They have been promised the Holy Spirit, but they have not received the Holy Spirit next. Now, they do what I would imagine any of us would do is their imaginations, I believe, start to probably run wild a little bit. And they're thinking, okay, well, he's given us a promise for this Holy Spirit, and he's also told us that we have to stay and to wait. And so I, I, I think their minds start to wander, and they begin to imagine what's next. And that it's like some kids on the night before Christmas where they're sitting there just thinking about, okay, what is it that I'm going to get? What am I, you know, what am I about to receive? How is this all going to happen? How exciting is all of that? Well, even though Jesus told them that they were supposed to sit tight there in Jerusalem, we actually find that they didn't stay together. Um, in fact, the first words right here in verse 6 says, so when they had come together, so they didn't remain together right there in Jerusalem. And in fact, if we just kind of take a peek down at verse 12, you'll see where it is that they went. They came together, and it says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So, yes, they were told to stay in Jerusalem, but they did not remain exactly right there in Jerusalem proper. Now, I'm not insinuating that they in any way sinned or did something wrong. And in fact, I think that uh, Luke here in Acts does us the favor of, of making it clear that they really didn't do anything wrong because in verse 12, he goes out of his way to add the phrase that which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's uh, a Sabbath day's journey away. So it, it's approximately three-quarters of a mile away. So yes, they remain there. They haven't scattered to the winds. And there they are, at least in the vicinity of, uh, of Jerusalem. And they find themselves on the Mount of Olives. And this, frankly, is the perfect place for them to be. I Not only did they not sin, I, uh, I wouldn't I, they probably were even led there, maybe by the Holy Spirit, maybe Jesus in a, in a way that isn't recorded here directed them there. But in any case, we have these men, the apostles that had gone from Jerusalem, and now they're together just right outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And this is the perfect, providentially provided landscape for them to meet for what's going on. I don't know if you've ever put together, but all of the significance that seems to take place on mountains, right? This is, this is another mountaintop experience of biblical proportions. Remember the whole um, Adam and Eve communing with God is on a mountain. Abraham, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, took him up a mountain. Moses, when he received the Ten Commandments, he was on top of a mountain. Jesus, in the transfiguration, went up on the mountain. And then even because of that, that, recurring, um, that, that recurring theme of God meeting in a special way with his people on the mountaintop, that's why the temple itself was even built on what they called the Temple Mount, was to, um, was to kind of recreate that, that look, that 
that sentiment because it was up on a mount. So here they are actually on the Mount of Olives, which is the nearest peak next to Jerusalem and is higher than Jerusalem itself, actually. And even though Jesus is on the other side of the grave, and even though he has been with them for 40 days, and you know, Jesus has now accomplished his mission as it relates to the crucifixion and overcoming death itself and having been resurrected and is standing right there in front of them physically, the apostles clearly have still not received the Holy Spirit. That's definitely what they're lacking. These guys, they don't have the Holy Spirit. And so when they're looking at Jesus, even though they had received all of this theological training during that phase of Jesus' um, Uh, traveling from uh, the region of Galilee down to Jerusalem, and he's teaching them as he goes, giving them personal instruction about everything that's going on, and now he's on the other side of the grave, having uh, been victorious over death itself. He's there physically in front of them, so you figure whatever kind of theological training that these guys are continuing to get during those 40 days before Uh, uh, before Jesus had ascended as well, however effective that was, they are still not really getting it, at least not like they're going to. And so what's happened is, uh, even though they're looking at Jesus physically and they're also, uh, you know, mentally know, intellectually know what he has accomplished spiritually, the backdrop that they have, the worldview that they have is informed by the, by the Hebrew canon, by the Old Testament, but they can't seem to see what it was that the Old Testament was describing that Jesus had accomplished. What I mean is that even though they're looking at everything that Jesus had done, and they're even looking at Jesus himself, his very body right there in front of them, after he had victory over the grave, they still have this viewpoint that's past. They're looking back. They're looking historically. They're thinking about national victories. Look at verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In verses 6 through 8, they are looking back. And what they did is this is like deja vu from the last time that we have recorded for us that conversation between the apostles and Jesus when they were on the Mount of Olives. Do you remember what what took place? Jesus, all the stuff had happened. Jesus had cleansed the temple, and it was was, uh, after he had cursed the tree and all those things, and they had left Jerusalem for the night. They were on the Mount of Olives. It's what we call the Olivet Discourse. And you remember what kind of kicked it off was one of the apostles says, oh, my goodness, hey, Jesus, look at the temple. Look how beautiful it is. And you remember Jesus says, I'm going to tell you right now. Not one stone is going to be left on another on that temple, right? So this is how that conversation the last time that we know of that they were all together on the Mount of Olives was taking place. And then what happens going forward from that is that they ask a rather ill-conceived question. Do you remember the mistake they make in the question that they asked? We spent quite a bit of time looking at it. We actually went through four different, as I recall anyway, four different sermons going through Mark 13. But in the question, they conflated two issues. That was their problem. 
they squished together the idea that what Jesus had accomplished spiritually was connected either directly or overlapped or had very little distance between Jesus spiritually having victory and there being a political victory. They were looking at things in their near lifetime. Remember, Jesus ends up answering them, and he ends up talking about two different things. He starts giving an answer about what's going to take place in their lifetime, in the near future, and he says, uh, talks about things that are going to happen later. Because you'll remember that their question was, tell us, when will these things be? And See, it was a two-parted question. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Their assumptions informed their questions. Their question was wrong because there was an assumption built in it. When these things happen, well, that's the end of the age. It has to be altogether one thing. And Jesus goes through the effort of, of kind of parsing those things, taking them apart and saying, no, 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 these are the things that are about to happen. Those are the, some things that are going to take place before the end of the age. And he starts getting into some of those details back when the previous Olivet Discourse. But they still have that mindset. They still have that backward-looking, nationalistic mindset that looks to history. Jewish history. They made the assumption that Jesus' victory over Roman execution was chronologically synonymous with victory over Roman government. Okay, Jesus came from the grave. He defeated death. Okay, so now that means he's going to defeat the Roman government, right? Well, they're thinking, this whole thinking was baked into that question that, he asked, that they asked. So let's look at the question one more time. It says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You can see it right there. It's right in the question itself. So are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I suppose at, at first blush, that question you know, for the Jew in particular, could seem like a, an understandable question. It kind of makes sense that they would ask that. In fact, not only is it understandable, it could even, if taken from the right angle, appear to be legitimate or maybe even a pious question, a, pious question, a really good question. Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? After all, I mean, Israel was God's creation. He's the one that plucked Abraham out of a out of, out of a um, idol worshiping family, an idol worshiping culture, out of nothing basically, and creates the Jewish people. The Jews themselves are called His chosen people. Israel is the nation that God Himself created out of the Exodus. They are the ones that God delivered from slavery and oppression. Israel is the nation that he brought through the wilderness. They are the ones that experienced military victory in these amazing, just crazy, amazing ways. They're the ones that were both promised and then gifted directly from God, the promised land. In all of those situations, God is at work. 
You can, so you can see how if you know those stories, if you have a good grasp of your Hebrew canon, of that Old Testament, and then you see what Jesus is doing, and then you ask the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You can see how if you, through that grid, it can sound like a legitimate and maybe even a good question to ask Jesus. Because in all of those ways in the past, God was at work. So if, with the question, it's being communicated, is God going back to work, then to that degree, it would be a legitimate and maybe even a pious or um, God-honoring question. But I would suggest that it was not. It did not fit. It was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a question that puts ethnic Israel back on the throne. David was on the throne. Those are the glory days, right? David on the throne, ruling all the nations. You could even say it spills into the lifetime of Solomon, his son, when there's peace in the land and the, the, uh, the temple itself was in its glorious state. They were bringing great gifts to him. Um, silver was as nothing in the land. Those are the good old days. And so their question has this nationalistic flavor. It has this nation-centered thinking. And I would suggest that at best, we don't know exactly the motivation of their heart or what was going on in their minds, but I would suggest that at best, they were uninformed, they just didn't get it, and they were just kind of nearsighted, and that's why they asked what they asked. But at worst, it's a shameful, shamefully selfish question. In other words, it's hiding the real question of the heart, which is, when are our people going to be back in a position of power? When are we the rulers again, and when are all these guys that are oppressing us, when are they going to be the slaves? Can you please tell us that, Jesus? Now is it time? Do we get to take it all back? Do we get the power? And what they failed to understand The missing piece here is that all of those things that God was doing in the past, all of that choosing Abraham, creating a people of his own, bringing them and and turning them into a nation, bringing them through the wilderness, giving them those military victories, all of those things were pointing forward to Christ and what it was that he was going to accomplish. It was pointing forward to the true Israel. It was pointing forward to the faithful one that would make it possible for God's people from every nation to be reconciled to him. They weren't seeing Jesus and what he accomplished as the end state. They saw something else, which to borrow a phrase that our brother used in the prayer service, Uh, the other night, they were looking at making Jerusalem great again. So, Jesus is not in the business of doing that. It's all the bullseye of the entirety of the gospel message is Christ. It's not the nation of Israel's, and it's not the Jews. Now, we have the advantage 
of a couple thousand years past all of these things happening and having a nice leather-bound Bible and everything and knowing these stories and reading them over that we can look at this and maybe we look at what the, Jew, what the apostles are doing here and we even have a little bit of pity for them and we say, man, you know, you guys, you still, you still don't seem to get it. You got Jesus right there in front of you and um, he's already been resurrected and he's been with you 40 days and you still don't seem to understand that he is the point and that it's not a political issue. They don't seem to be able to see the forest for the trees, but I would suggest that we, Christians, thousands of Christians sitting in pews today on the Lord's Day, do the exact same thing. Imagine asking somebody, the average Christian in church, a question like, hey, you know, what efforts have you made in the last six months or even a year to communicate communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to your neighbor, to someone in your neighborhood, to somebody that you see regularly, somebody that's within your sphere, just let's, let's just pick people that are within your reasonable sphere of life that you have regular contact with. And if you ask somebody, how much effort have you put into being a witness for Christ to those people, I think that the average response you're going to get is a rather sheepish look and a mumbled response of something not particularly distinct. Maybe people aren't particularly motivated to do that. There's lots of reasons. They feel bad. Yeah, I probably should, but I just haven't done that. Now, those same people, if you were to tell them, okay, well, that person, you know, your, let's just say your neighbor, your neighbor is interested in taking under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. Your neighbor is the one that has been on the school board and said, I think we should stop calling it Christmas break and we should call it holiday break. Your neighbor is the one that has started a petition to get the phrase, in God we trust, removed from the dollar bill. That will motivate people. That's what fires people up. People get angry over those kinds of things, and they won't say one word about the fact that that person is marching their life towards hell and towards eternal judgment. Why is it that Christians will take to the streets over political issues and remain dead silent when eternity is at stake? They'll bow up over a presidential candidate and remain silent for Christ. I would say that the apostles then and Christians now still conflate politics and Christianity. Jesus heard their question. They laid their question out to him. And he heard their question, and we see his response in verse 7. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So essentially, um, you, you know, in the previous discourse that they had on the Mount of Olives, Jesus went out of his way to take their question that they had, uh, you know, they had mixed these two different issues together, and he, he took the time to kind of pull them apart. He doesn't do that here. 
He's very efficient with his words. He doesn't uh, uh, pick apart the things that are in the near term and the things that are going to happen later. And instead, what he does is he tells them what they don't need to know. He already knows that there's going to be a new Jerusalem. There is going to be a new heaven. There is going to be a new earth. He knows that all of creation is going to be consummated when he returns, but he does not take the time to talk about that. At this time and in this particular circumstance, during this conversation on the Mount of Olives, that's not what he talks about. Instead, what he does is he says, Stop worrying about when all of those things are going to take place. This is what you need to know. There is a delay. There's a space between now and then. The angels themselves don't know when Christ returns, it is compared to a thief showing up in the night. No one knows when it's going to happen. So there are two things that they need to know, and that first is that there is going to be a delay. There is that sense that Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom. The very fact that he's standing in front of them after having been crucified, he's declared victory over the grave, victory over death, and he's standing before them because that kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's just not complete. That is that concept of the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. The kingdom has been inaugurated. It just hasn't been consummated. And here they are between those two times, and he is telling them, stop worrying about when the end is going to come. And then the second thing he does, we find in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So first, he's communicating that there's going to be delay. Stop worrying about it. And the second thing that he tells them to do is that in that space of the delay, that they, are, they have been commissioned to be his witnesses. He has given them a purpose. They are going to be witnesses starting with where they physically are located at that time, which is in Judea, and then that, is, that witness is going to expand out into Samaria, which, side note, the Samaritans and the Jews have like this deep-seated generational hate for each other. So he's telling, think about that now, what he's communicating. He's not just giving a geographical thing. He is communicating, you are going to be my witnesses and you're going to start right where we are, and you're going to push this kingdom out, this inaugurated kingdom. It's going to expand, and you're going to be witnesses to the very people that you have been taught from birth, basically, to hate, to have no dealings with. You're going to take the witness of Christ's victory to them, and it will go on out from there to the all corners of the earth. I would also note here that you know, the new heaven, the new earth, it is the final destination. It's not a stop along the way to return back to Israel. Israel is not the centerpiece. Jews are not the centerpiece. They were there to always point forward to what it is that Christ was going to accomplish. Jesus and the church and what he did for the church is the finale. 
Jesus died for the church, and he's going to return for the church full spot. There never is, in a sense, to use the question that they posed in, in, in verse 6, there never is a to Israel as it relates to what Christ is doing. He is the true Israel. He is going to return for his church. End of story. And now, transitioning from them looking back, we then see that they looked up in verses 9 to 11. After Jesus here, he gets the last word with them. They ask their question. He gives them the response that communicates that there's going to be a delay to stop worrying about when the end's going to come because during that time in the delay, you are required to be my witnesses. So having had that last word, he now ascends and was received by a cloud. And I say that because where it says right here um, in verse uh, nine, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The uh, the Greek, like the, the the direct translation, is actually that a cloud that he was received by a cloud. Now, it's interesting that we have these uh, national holidays. We have big celebrations for the birth of Christ and Christmas. We have this big celebration in the resurrection of Christ, in Easter, in Resurrection Sunday, but we don't seem within the church to make quite as big of a deal about the ascension. But this whole idea of Jesus being received into a cloud is a really big deal. He is not, this is not just a divine Cadillac way to make a flashy exit. God isn't going up in the clouds like, wow, well, I mean, you gotta, you got to leave with a bang, right? And so uh, for him, it's to be received by the clouds. This has significance. When he goes up and is received by the cloud, he is taking his position on the throne. Christ is ascending to the throne. This is the highest point of Christ's exaltation prior to his return. The highest point of Christ's exaltation prior to his return. This is Jesus's crowning moment. To be seated on the throne is to rule. I want to uh, point out to you in uh, three different spots in Hebrews this order of events. Watch how these things go chronologically. So I'm going to start with um, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And it reads, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now watch the, the, the timing, the chronology. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the victory took place, and after that took place, he then is seated on high on the throne. And then in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, it reads, But when Christ, so see the timing, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of God. And then in Hebrews 12, chapter 12, verse 2, it reads, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All of these things are taking place in this order. Jesus lives the perfect life. He pays the ultimate penalty for our sin. He's victorious over the grave. And yet there's this time of 40 days where that he spends physically in the presence of his apostles. But then once the ascension takes place, he is being seated on the throne. The kingdom has been inaugurated and now he is seated on the throne. And to be seated on the throne is to rule over the church and that mission of, expand, of expansion during the delay, that mission that he just gave to the apostles. So if you think about it this way, the apostles cannot be the foundation of the church until they've received the Holy Spirit. They cannot receive the Holy Spirit until Jesus has taken his seat on the throne and then it's the Father and the Son after that that send the Holy Spirit. So at the crucifixion, men lifted up Jesus on the cross to his humiliation and to their glory. And now Jesus in the resurrection and actually at the ascension is taken up and it's he being received in the, in the cloud to the humiliation of the evil one and to the glory of Christ. So now, the, uh, it's not just Jesus who's telling the apostles to change, that they need to change their focus. Hey, this isn't about Israel. We now have these two guys that enter the scene. We have two angels that are standing there, and they say, hey, you know, the apostles now, they're looking up, and uh, they're like, hey, um, what are you fellas doing? He's going to return in the same way. And again, I would suggest that this is consistent with all of Scripture, which is that Christ's return is much less complicated than I think a lot of Christians would like it to be. The kingdom has been inaugurated. You're all going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to get to the work of expanding the kingdom, and then Jesus is one day is going to return on the clouds. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it reads... For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We do want to keep in mind the fact that when Jesus returns, that his children will be caught up in the air in the clouds with him, and that's what these angels are communicating to them, to the apostles. You don't need to look up there anymore. Jesus is going to return how he left. And then lastly, we see in verses 12 to 14 that they had been looking back, then they were looking up, and then finally we see that they were looking to God. 
You might remember that I made the point several times when we were finishing up the book of Mark and uh, as Jesus in those, uh, particularly in those final um, accounts of Jesus going to the cross and dying in the crucifixion, uh, or uh, yeah, dying on the cross, that there were lots of additional details that, the, uh, that Mark was giving to us. And it was, I don't know, I tend to look at these things in kind of a forensic way, that is to say, you know, how would this hold up in court? And I think that, the, um, that Mark in, the, in that account regularly gave these additional details that the story doesn't necessarily require to communicate what's happening, but it's very helpful because it takes away the argument from a lot of the detractors. And here we have, again, in, um, in Acts 1, as it relates to Jesus' ascension, we have 11 witnesses to his ascension. We have the remaining 11 apostles that are standing right there that are listed explicitly as witnesses to Christ's ascension. And then from there, they return back to Jerusalem along with a group of women, and they all return to the upper room. Now, we don't know as far as this upper room It's entirely possible it's the same upper room that the men and some women were in before when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. All of that is absolutely a possibility. But in any case, they're now back in Jerusalem proper. They're back in this upper room together. And now I would say this, that even though they have not received the Holy Spirit, these men finally get one thing right. To their credit, and I think this is a good lesson that we could learn as well, which is when Jesus put an end to the conversation, when Jesus says, you're not going to know the time of the season, when he puts the period on the answer, there are no more questions to be asked. And so in this particular case, they also stopped, they returned, and that they took the best action that they could possibly do, which was they devoted themselves to prayer. They've been told the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom, whatever that's going to look like, is not taking place right now. They watched Jesus ascend. They watched him get received into the clouds. They know he will return into the clouds. And then I want to tie this back to the state that they were in, because remember, they haven't received the Holy Spirit, so they're still in that stay and wait period, even though he has given them this instruction. And again, I I have no way of knowing what those kind of emotions must have been like. Here they had this discussion on the Mount of Olives again, and they actually watch him ascend. Then they have two angels standing there giving them additional instruction. So they return back to Jerusalem. And instead now of looking back and instead of looking up, now they looked to God by devoting themselves to prayer. I want to finish by asking you to take your mind with me to the clouds. When Christ ascended, he was received by a cloud. He was received by, the, by a cloud where he was going to be seated on the throne. He is being seated on the throne to rule. To rule by definition. To rule is to exercise justice. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I need to read 
couple of verses for you out of there. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, partway through verse 7. Listen, I need you to hear this. Jesus is sitting on his throne and ruling. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. When Jesus returns in that cloud again, do you hear these words? These are sobering words. He's returning in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most serious message that you will ever hear if you are an unbeliever. You need to know what it is that's at stake when Christ returns in the clouds. But here's the hope, is that there was a cloud of ascension to begin with, that you can be counted among the saints that marvel at his return if you repent and believe. Now, brother and sister, listen. You and I, we are living between the clouds. We are living between that first cloud of ascension. We weren't there on the Mount of Olives, but we get praise God through his word. We get to read about it. We get to study it. And we also know the same thing that the angels, that Jesus told them and that the angels told those apostles, which he's going to return the same way that he left. But here we are. We already know that in this already and not yet age, this church age, between the cloud of Christ's crowning ascension and his return, when we are going to be caught up in the clouds, that there are a couple of things that we should not do. We should not be worrying about the timing. We should not be consumed with when it's going to take place. And we should not be like kids before Christmas morning. We should not be just sitting there doing nothing and imagining all the things that we're going to receive. We have a job to do. We have the same instruction that the apostles were given by Christ at that time, that there is going to be a delay and that we are required to be a witness. I'm turning back right now to uh, Hebrews chapter 12 one more time. I had read uh, previously about Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And remember, I was talking about the timing, and, and then, then he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But I want to I talk about one more cloud that precedes that in verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Since, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... 
let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then it goes on to talk about Christ despising the shame and being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now look, all of this for them was contained, this instruction was contained inside of that space where they were commanded to stay and wait. And it is entirely possible that in your life right now, you have been told, you, God's, the circumstances that God has put you in has limited you in some way, physically, uh, financially, I don't know, in some way that you cannot go into all the world and be a witness for his kingdom. But within the sphere that he has given to you, you can be a witness. And even if there are limitations there, you absolutely can be devoted to prayer. That is the appropriate response to the limitations that God has providentially put in your life. You don't get to sit there and just say, well, I wonder what God got in store for me and do nothing. You are to run the race you are uh, to run the race with endurance. And even if that race is limited all the way down to one thing, and that being devoted to prayer. You are the one. It's between you and God that knows the degree to which you can obey his command during our time between the clouds to be his witness. You are going to have to give an answer to that. But praise God, he has given you everything you need to be that witness and to be devoted to him in prayer. Let's run with endurance the race set before us, knowing that that first cloud of victory has taken place and that we eagerly await the anticipation of that second cloud. Join me in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can claim victory because of Christ's victory, because he ascended and was received into the cloud to be seated at the throne of God, to rule. Thank you, Lord, that you had given us the hope that we'll be able to marvel at your presence and the return of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that there is a great cl cloud of witnesses that are, that are watching as we live our lives between the clouds. Lord, help us to run the race with endurance. Help us to be witnesses for you. Lord, help us to be devoted to prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.